Well, the bulk of our morning will be spent in John chapter 11. We'll zero in on verses 41 and 42. Let me jump all the way to the end and tell you the big point that I want to make. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ. Through our suffering, our trials, our tribulations, there is something that Jesus offers us that we can't get anywhere else. It's hope. It's hope. Hope of a bright future, a great tomorrow. A hope that includes us and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the saints of old gathered around a table and enjoying fellowship for eternity. So there's the end of the sermon. Now let's go back to the beginning. In chapter 11 of John, one of the things that stands out in this chapter is that very concept and idea of hope. The hope that Jesus alone supplies. So let's, let's pray and then we'll jump right into the text. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you, God, that we could gather together brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us this moment and this place that we could read from your word, that we could hear your word sung, hear your word preached and proclaimed. And Father, we pray that your word would fall on fertile soil and produce fruit, fruits of righteousness and repentance. And Father, I pray that all that I am, including my name and my stature, and even my mistakes, that they would quickly be forgotten. But that our minds and our hearts will be pointed towards you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen? Amen. John chapter 11, verse 41 and 42. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So the context of our passage is, is, is pretty big. We have one of the most Hopeless cases in the entire Bible. And I want to zoom in eventually at verse 41 and 42. And what we see is that Lazarus is dead. D-E-A-D. Dead. Do we understand dead? Okay, I want to make sure. And yet, Christ is about to demonstrate his power and his authority and his might and his care. So let's take in a bit of that, that, that large context and then we'll zoom in at what I believe Christ wants us to see. In verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 11... Jesus finds out that his friend, Lazarus, is, is sick. 
Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, that they're concerned about their brother, so they send word to Jesus and tell him, come and heal your friend Lazarus. Their request, it says a lot to us about what they truly think about Jesus. In verses 4 through 10, Jesus hears their request, but instead of getting up and, and, and rushing the five or so miles to see his friend and to be with them, he, he stays where he is for a couple of days. And he tells his disciples in verse 4 that under ordinary circumstances, Lazarus would recover. But he tells them that these are not normal circumstances. He hints to them that Lazarus is going to die. Why didn't Jesus get up and rush over to be with them and heal Lazarus? I mean, he could have healed Lazarus in that moment right where Jesus was. He didn't have to get up and go anywhere. He's God. He could have healed him right there at that moment, but he didn't. He stayed put because he wanted Lazarus to die. Let, let that sink in for a second. He chose to stay where he was because he wanted Lazarus to die. He, he waited until Lazarus was dead because God would be most glorified in the death of Lazarus than in the healing of Lazarus. I know that that's tough for us. To think that God wanted him to die? That's hard for us today, right? Because we have this Americanized bubblegum Jesus that's supposed to heal everyone every time. And we have this weak Jesus who kowtows to us that, that we command. That's the American Jesus. The Jesus that, that when you pray, you have to holler at him in order for him to hear you. The Jesus that you have to say, Jesus, go and, and, and heal my mother in the hospital. No, man, what kind of Jesus is that? Better off, who do you think you are? And we would command God. Of, anyway, so. But what we have, because I, I don't. My brother was very gracious and said, you know, take about 35, 40 minutes. <laughs> oh, man, don't, you have no idea what you just said. No, but I, I will be. I'll be good. I'll take that 45, 50 minutes that you've given me. I'll make the most of my hour. <laughs> no, but what we, have, what we see is that, that Mary and, and Martha, they, they're forced 
to watch the death of their loved one. That they were forced to watch him die. They had to wash his body and prepare him for burial. They had to place their brother in a tomb. They had to experience the pain and the sorrow and the heartbreak of this hopeless situation. And I know that some of us know this pain firsthand. Sometimes we, we, we bring our problems to the Lord only to be met with silence. You call on him with expectation and you get nothing in return. You need an answer because your situation is getting worse and tomorrow might be too late. And you listen to your favorite TV preacher and they tell you that you must speak the right words and God will respond. That's rubbish. That is a big pile of stinking, steaming trash. They tell you that you're, you're not asking in faith, so it's your fault. Listen to me. I'll say it again. You, me, we have no power over God. He does what he wants, when he wants, however he wants, because he is God. He is sovereign, and you and me, we are not. And we have the permission and expectation to take our cares to him and even express our emotions. But that's where it stops. He is God. He does what he wants. And I think our text helps bring a bit of clarity, though, about this divine silence. See, in the text, we're able to see what, what, what Mary and Martha couldn't see. Jesus, and now we know, but at the time, Jesus knew what was on the other side of their problems. He knew what was on the other side of their pressure. And, and beloved, he knows what's on the other side of yours as well. Because yeah. yeah. see, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 tells us that no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Verse, verses 11 through 16. Uh, let's back up just a little bit. In Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus. He says of Jairus' daughter that she was asleep. And in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, at the end of Stephen's martyrdom, we're told that he falls asleep. And in verses 11 through 16, we see this being said of Lazarus. And Jesus makes it plain for them, and he informs them that Lazarus is dead. Right? He is asleep. He's dead. I'm making that point 
because there is a bit of controversy as to whether or not he was sleep, snoring sleep or dead sleep. He's dead. There's a bit of a problem, though, because he's dead and Jesus did nothing to stop it. He's dead, and his friend, who has all power, did nothing about it. But the problem isn't for him, it's for us. I find it amazing. In verse 15, Jesus says to the disciples, For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you might believe. And in verses 17 through 27, Jesus and the disciples, they make their way over. And Lazarus has been in the tomb now for four days. Jewish superstition of that day anyway, it said that a soul would stay near the grave for three days, hoping to return to the body. Therefore, it was accepted that after four days, there is absolutely no hope of resuscitation. Now, everyone else is there. They had been there with the sisters, Mary and Martha, friends and friends of the family and family and even some hired mourners. They're they're there consoling the sisters. And here comes Jesus rolling up late. Jesus right now is that guy that was supposed to bring the main dish to the party. And everybody couldn't wait, so they start eating. Half of the soda is gone, and they've even started cutting the cake, and now here he comes. I have a really good friend that's like that. He's he's here today, so I'm not going to point at him. I'm going to pay for that later, but that's okay. I have the microphone right now. But here he is. He's rolling up late, and and Martha has a problem with this. The text tells us that that she walked out to meet Jesus, and and Mary stayed in the house. More than likely, Mary was still in there mourning. But Martha rolls out and is like, yo, Jesus? Where you been at? Where were you? I know that you know what was happening. We called on you. We needed you, and you were not here. If you were here, he would still be alive. That's the ultimate guilt trip. But let's be honest. How many of us have felt that way before? Maybe you guys are a lot further along in your spiritual walk than I am. But I I can admit it. I've been there. Lord, where were you? I know you heard my cries. Where were you? Many of us have, have lost people over the last couple of years, and we have that question. Lord, where were you? There's no problem in asking that question. The problem comes when we stay there. 
when that becomes our worldview. But Jesus and the disciples, they are now in Bethany. And the scene is, is, it's one of mourning and and despair and wailing and and brokenheartedness. Verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Have you ever, with good intentions, said to a mourning friend, you will see your loved one again? As true as that statement might be for the Christian, what we don't mean is that you will see your friend or your loved one right now. Jesus meant that Lazarus was about to get up. As noble as it may seem, when a loved one dies, a future resurrection might not provide as much comfort for our friends that are mourning. Jesus doesn't claim to have resurrection life. Jesus doesn't claim to have some special knowledge. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. See, Jesus is is challenging Martha and us to trust that he is the source of eternal life. The only comfort that we can offer a loved one, the only true comfort that we can offer a loved one is Christ. If they have trusted in him, when their eyes are closed here, they will open in front of him. And they will see that Christ is the champion over death. Verse 50 of 1 Corinthians. It's one of my favorite passages. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does, the, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. and This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Shorter Catechism asks a question that I think fits our text this morning very well. Question 37 is, what benefits, I should call on Luke for this one, but what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Well, the souls of believers at their death 
made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves until the resurrection. See, we have this great hope, this great hope that when our eyes close here, they are immediately opened in front of Christ. And while our bodies await the resurrection in the grave, the hope in that is that on that great day when Christ cracks open the sky and calls us up, that we will see him as he is and we will be made just like him. There is no greater hope than that. That these knees won't hurt anymore. These backs won't hurt anymore. We will be absolutely perfect. We will see perfection. We will see Christ. And then we will be made just like him. Verses 28 through 37. Here we begin to see the humanity of Jesus. He hasn't made it into the village just yet. And all the people, though, that were in the village, in the house, are coming out to meet him. Mary greets Jesus by falling at his feet and crying and saying the same thing that her sister Martha said. If you were here, he would still be alive. And then Jesus starts crying. And everyone is crying. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they took Jesus to the tomb. And Jesus wept. Verses 38 through 42 reads, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus sees all the grief and all the mourning and it touches him. Beloved, Jesus cares. He cares. Acts chapter 11 and verse 27 tells us that he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and we move and have our being. The, the, the creator of the universe cares. And in John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus created everything. We're also told that everything was created by him, for him, and through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. This same God that created everything cares. This same God who is the purpose of everything cares. He's not a God who wound up the clock and walked away. He didn't just get everything kick-started and then said, I'll at you. 
No. He is intimately involved in each of our lives. He's not removed from the plight of his people. He's not removed from the pain of his people. He is present. He knows your pain. He is interested in our progress. He is interested, in, and, and not only is he interested in our, our pain, our, our progress, and our purposes, but he pursues us pursues us that we might know and see the power of God. And beloved, everything that Christ did was determined by the Father. He depended on his Father for everything. When you get home, I want you to read through John chapter 5, right? Start at verse 19. And some of what you will find is that Jesus only does what he sees the Father do. Don't, don't miss that. Don't, don't rush past that too quickly, thinking about the hot dogs on the grill. <laughs> Jesus only does what he sees the Father do. Verse 21 of chapter 5, right? And John. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So, they're at the tomb. And, and Jesus tells them to remove the stone. And Martha says, hold up. It's been four days. I don't know if you want to do that, yo. He's going to stink. It's four days dead. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believe that you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone and Jesus begins to pray. And here's the prayer, right? Here's the big idea. Here's where I want to put it in part for this morning. Here's the stopping point. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I, I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. This is where we ought to fix our hearts, right here. The Father always hears the Son. The Father always hears. Here's the son. And from what we can tell, Jesus had already asked for Lazarus's life. And all he had to do was give thanks to the father for it. From what we can tell, if you're in Christ, Jesus has already asked for your life. And we gather every Sunday to give thanks for it. The Father always hears the Son. If I had time, <laughs> we would go over to John chapter 15, John chapter 16, John chapter 17 and hear Jesus' prayers and see how much he talks about you. But Jesus prays outwardly. Right? Not, not, to, not to play to the crowd. He doesn't do it so that he's seen by others, but he's doing it so that, that they may see the intimacy of Jesus' relationship with his Father. The Son may ask and the Father grants. 
And with all the amazingness of, of Lazarus being raised from the dead, I think that we miss the fact that the Father hears the Son. And Christ mentions it out loud so that we would know that this is something that he asked for. Which is interesting because even at this moment, Christ was being our example and helping us to know that all that he did was the Father's will. And that they were in constant contact and have been since eternity past. We need to know desperately that Christ has the power and, and he is our power. He is our strength. He is our hope. He is our help when we face hopelessness. Where else can we turn? I mean, think about it. We, we wear designer fig leaves because we're trying to cover these bodies up, right? The, these bodies that truly we are ashamed of because these are the vessels in which we commit sins. So what does he do? He gives us hope for a brand new body, a body that will be sinless and perfect and able to function in front of the Father for eternity. We, we, we get ashamed of the way that we think, so we go back to school and get as much education as possible, or we entertain ourselves to death. So what, is the, what does he do? He, he tells us that, here, renew your mind. Have your mind transformed. He gives us hope for a brand new body, hope for a brand new mind. He tells us over in Jeremiah that we should not trust our hearts because they are desperately sick and wicked and evil. And he asks the question, who can know the heart? Then he answers that same question a few sentences later and says that God knows the heart. And we find in the New Testament that, that we have this hope of having a transformed heart. No longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh that beats for Christ. So he gives us hope of a brand new body, a brand new mind, and a brand new heart. exactly what the world offers but they can't cash that check because the world is bankrupt to put the pieces together Christ ascends to heaven after his resurrection and he sits down at the father's right hand what is he doing there well, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 34 and Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, he's making intercession for his people. The Father is listening to the Son. In fact, we are in him and he is in us. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that we, the Christian, that we are partakers of the divine nature. This is our hope. The Father always hears the Son. Therefore, our prayers are always heard on high. This is our great hope. Our great Father listens to us. He hears us. This is our comfort. Knowing that we can open our mouths and our Father in heaven is listening. As a dad, I want my kids to know that I hear them. And they will let you know 
if they don't feel like they're being heard, <laughs> if you've ever had a 10-year-old daughter, I promised my kids that I wouldn't embarrass them as a preacher. But as a dad, that's your job, right? That, that's your job. You pay tuition, you buy sneakers, you buy clothes, you get all of this stuff, Barbies. Can't have a man cave because Barbies have taken over. So I have the right to embarrass them. I, I, at least I think. My poor man cave. Can't even watch the Super Bowl because Ken and Barbie. I, and they got a pool in the middle of my... Anyway, so... But as the father of a, a, a daughter, I've learned that my daughters and even my son, they want their father's heart. They want their father's attention. And beloved, as children of the father, please know that we don't have to beg for his attention. He is listening. He is ready and willing to listen and to hear. And Jesus' prayer tells us that we're not in this world alone. That there's a divine connection and the Father in his sovereignty knows all things and has planned each of our ways and is in control of everything including our hopeless situation. So what is it? What's your hopeless situation? What is it that you think is too big, that goes way beyond God's power and control? What is it that, that is causing you to turn to anything else and look for comfort and hope? What is it that, that causes you to run to the liquor store instead of running to your knees? What is it that causes you to turn to sex Instead of falling to your knees, what is it that causes you to watch hours and hours of television and, and uh, uh, what's the, the YouTube or Reels or whatever, and TikTok? What, what is it that is causing you to pour all of your attention and energy there, hoping that you could be distracted from your problem? Whatever it is, it is going to fail you. Beloved, it has failed you. The only hope that we have is Christ. There's nothing more powerful than Christ. The Father is listening. He always hears the Son. And if Jesus can bring comfort to mourning people and raise the dead, then we can trust him with whatever it is that we're going through. And that's why we even come to the Lord's table. Because there we find the comfort needed. We find the hope that we need. And my hope is that we would fix our gaze on Christ. That we would turn our affections toward Christ. And know that we are heard. That those who are in Christ, you are heard. The Father hears you and he will respond in his time and trust that his timing is better than yours.